Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Good morning, church. This morning we're going to be reading um, John 4, 7 through 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the word of God. And you cannot fully understand that passage without also understanding this passage. In Jeremiah 2, verses 9 through 13, God says to his people, therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and I contend with your children's children. Cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Ketter and examine with care See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? Can you find a nation that has traded its gods even when they are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. They've changed their relationship with me. They have abandoned me for things that do not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. Father, fountain of living water, how easily we exchange you for gods that are not God. How tragic that your own people 
exchange their glory, their relationship with you, the living God, for things that do not profit. How sad, how tragic that you, the living God who gives living water, are exchanged, replaced with water found in cisterns we've dug out for ourselves that crack and leak, that do not satisfy and run out time and time again. Oh, Lord God, restore us to yourself. Refresh us in yourself. Return us, Lord God, to that living water that only you can give. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, I must warn you that uh, today's message is uh, full of hope, full of help, full of encouragement, and full of pain. It has brought me much good and done me much good, and I hope today it will do the same for you. We are in John chapter 4. We are looking together at verses 1 through 29. And we find in verses 1 through 6 that Jesus' success, the Scripture says, in gathering followers is gaining unwanted attention from the Jewish authorities who are both offended and threatened by it. As a result, John says in verses 1 through 6 that Jesus decides to leave Galilee and make his way, or leave Judea and make his way back to Galilee where there is a friendlier atmosphere. He has two routes he can take for the trip. He takes the shorter and more dangerous one through Samaritan territory. The Samaritans and the Jews have a longstanding hatred for each other. And so entering their territory can be risky for a Jew and more stressful for a Jew than the other journey. Most Jews would take the longer route. But John says, you'll notice in the scripture, Jesus had to go through Samaria. And the reason is far greater than fleeing the anger of the Pharisees. Indeed, the uh, scripture shows us the reasons Jesus had to go through Samaria are shown by this well-known conversation with an unnamed woman at Jacob's well. Now, in sharing this part of Jesus' story, we find John doing something far more significant than just telling another in a long line, a long string of Jesus' stories. With chapter 4 coming on the heels of chapter 3, he's offering us a study in contrast between the Nicodemus encounter with Jesus and this woman's encounter with Jesus. He tells us later in John chapter 20 that he doesn't record everything that Jesus did in his three-year ministry. There wasn't enough room and there wasn't enough time. There are not enough books in the world to record all that Jesus did in his ministry. But what he does include, he says, he includes so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life and keep finding life in his name. And so in other words, every story, every teaching he gives has two reasons behind them, faith and life in and from Jesus. Faith and life in and from Jesus. John includes the story of Nicodemus and follows it with the story of the woman uh, for, uh, at the well for these same reasons. Indeed, there's something vital that 
his readers need to see about Jesus that these two encounters show when they're placed side by side. And I want to propose to you that what they show us is the very heart of God. Seen in the heart of Jesus for both Nicodemus and for the woman at the well. But especially for the woman at the well. Now Nicodemus, if you recall, is learned and uh, influential and he's respected and he's orthodox and he's theologically trained. He is a man. He is a Jew among Jews. He's a leader. This woman is altogether different, something that is obvious right from the very beginning when she's introduced to us in verse 7. There are three strikes against her as she enters our story. In fact, four strikes if you could allow such a thing. First, she is a woman. And this fact means that she is unschooled, without influence, and seen as inferior to men in all the ways that count most. Secondly, she is a woman of Samaria. To be a Samaritan is to be in the minority and despised by the Jewish majority of that region. Samaritans were of mixed Jewish blood with a semi-pagan religion that had borrowed from the Jewish faith and then added to it. The Jews considered them inferior, spiritually deceived, and spiritually dangerous. They were seen as morally and religiously unclean and unacceptable to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Samaritan women were considered the worst of the worst. A good Jew would not be near such a woman, would not touch something she had touched, and would never, ever speak to her. Third, this woman is a woman with a past that she can't hide. Her story is a long and painful one. She has a morally messed up life, one that she has helped create for herself. And anyone who knows her knows it. And what we discover with her introduction is that while the Jews treated the Samaritans as outcasts, she is herself an outcast among the outcasts. If Samaritan women are at the bottom of the ladder, they will not even let her join them at the bottom of the ladder. This, major, this condition explains why it is noon and in the heat of the day and no other women are around to get water. It explains why it is that she's there doing what the rest of the women all did together, getting water. They don't want her around. She knows it. She stays away. But finally, I want you to see with me that she is a woman of faith like all of us are. All of us believe in something. All of us believe in someone. We have to because none of us is ever sufficient for this life or the things of this life. All of us need something greater than ourselves to live for. But the problem for this woman is that her faith is a faith that doesn't work. It doesn't help. It gives her very little hope and very little comfort in the life she has. God for her is a distant mystery and her life is in many ways a desperate misery. And so this woman is brought before us. She is unnamed and, and, uh, and she is unknown. She's unwanted and she is unaccepted. She's unsatisfied and she is deeply unhappy. Part of this is due to others, but much of this is due to her own poor choices. She is in a mess, largely of her own making. This woman at the well then 
is the consummate picture of every person who is hard to love. She's unlovable because with her choices, her attitudes, and her actions, she's made herself unlovable. Many would call her a loser and a lost cause. This woman is that man standing on the street corner who can't get his life together with a sign saying, hungry, willing to work for food, God bless you. This woman is that surly, brash person at work who makes work for everyone else miserable with their bad attitude and the chip they carry on their shoulder. This woman is that person in your family or among your friends who keeps choosing to fail, who keeps failing and keeps frustrating everyone else with their failures. She is that person. She is that waste of time person. She is that will not listen person. She is that person who keeps doing the same wrong things and getting the same bad results time and time again. She's that person. Now, what is so unexpected and surprising to the honest reader is the trouble Jesus goes to give her his time and his attention. Because this story is a well-known story for many of us, the great danger we have as we come to this passage is that we will take the fact of Jesus' investment in her as a given, that we will make little of it and move on to the content and the dynamics of their conversation and its results. But... The very reason I think that John includes this story here is because there's nothing given about Jesus' investment in her. And if we miss the unexpected investment, we will miss not only the point of the entire story, we will miss the point of God's greater story itself. The point is to show how the heart of Jesus drives his investment in such a person and what that heart looks like. For this reason, this story of the woman at the well is one of our greatest treasures. For by it we see and know the heart of God. We see how and why God sees and wants to treat the worst of us, the least of us, all of us. We also begin to see how and why God expects his people to see and treat the worst, the least among us and around us. So I want us to make our way through the story today, looking at what this woman's encounter with Jesus meant for her and glimpsing the heart of Jesus that explains it. We will come back to this story next week, but we've got to start at this story and see it as her story so that we can find and see the heart. Of Jesus. This morning, what I want you to see, especially how and why, because of who Jesus is, Jesus deliberately does four things for her. He engages her, he exposes her, he embraces her, and he emancipates her. He frees her. He engages her, he exposes her. He embraces her, and he emancipates and elevates her. First, I want you to notice with your Bibles open, verses 7 through 15, how the woman is engaged. 
John opens the story by showing us a Jesus who is tired and a Jesus who is hot from his journey, sitting by Jacob's well while his disciples go into the Samaritan village of Sychar together to buy food for lunch. The woman of Samaria comes and finds him there. And as is always the case, what happens to this woman who finds Jesus is that she eventually discovers that he is finding her. She is the reason he had to go to Samaria. Now, she has no reason to expect Jesus to speak to her or even to stay near her. So when he first engages her and asks her for water in verse 7, she's shocked and she asks him in a half-mocking, half-teasing way, how is it that you ask me for drink? Jesus' reply is even more engaging and even more enticing. He says, you ought to be asking me for water for I have living water from God to give. Such living water for Jesus means the spiritual water from God that cleanses, that flows continually, that brings and preserves life at its very best, that brings and preserves eternal life. It's a water that gives the life that satisfies. Her response is to treat him like a door-to-door salesperson with a product that is too good to be true. She mocks him even more. She marks him as a pretender with an agenda. And she points out the obvious. Number one, you have nothing to draw water with, Mr. Man at the well offering water that never runs out. And secondly, you're nothing like the real Jacob and his real well with its real water. I got a real well here, sir. I got real water here, sir. And I got a real bucket here, sir. And you don't have a well, you don't have any water, and you don't have a bucket, Mr. Man at the well offering water. Do you think you can just snap your fingers and find a spring on this spot where Jacob had to dig so deep to find water, she wants to know? Jesus gets up, walks away, and says, well, at least I tried. I'm sick of you. I understand why nobody wants to come get water with you. Sassy Samaritan woman. And he marches off into the desert. That's the revised, unstandard version. No, Jesus is undaunted. He persists. He presses in. He says, look at verses 13 to 14. Look, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There is another water. Jesus says, that lives, that flows constantly, that brings lasting life. And there is this water that leaks and stagnates and brings thirst again. There is a spiritual realm as real as a physical one, but the spiritual is far more critical for eternity. There's a spiritual water that can satisfy both now and forever, unlike this water from Jacob's well or any other well you might try. Now, the woman doesn't and can't yet understand all of this. She doesn't understand that his offer is not to satisfy the body, but the soul, that God 
She doesn't understand that God made her and all of us for himself and that God made us in such a way that nothing else could ever satisfy us for nothing and no one else is God. Just can't, just won't. She can only think in physical terms and she can only think about how to get the water she needs without carrying it and without the exposure to hateful people. Her response to this even greater claim is more skepticism, I think. She says, okay, then Mr. Wonder Worker without a well, prove it. Give me this water that gives life and then I'll not have to endure this repeat, this repeat trip in the heat and the cruel treatment of others. So now I want you to see with me, without question, this woman is fully engaged. Jesus has her full, if not irritated, attention. And I would point out to you that what Jesus is doing here is neither easy nor is it fun. Broken people have sharp edges. Broken people have foul mouths. Broken people use strong language. Broken people can reach out and hurt you. What Jesus is doing here is neither easy nor fun. And many would never take the time or spare the energy for such a woman and such a conversation. But Jesus will and Jesus does. Why? Because of his heart. Because of who he is, not because of who she is, because of who he is. But next, see with me the woman exposed in verses 16 to 20. John records next Jesus' response to the woman's taunt to prove that he has living water to give that he says he has. She's not ready for what he does next. She wants Jesus to prove himself and he does just that, but he does it with a request and a set of insights that she couldn't see coming. In verses 16 to 18, he says, well, go. Call your husband and come here. Now, that is not a surprising request. At her age, she should have been married in that culture. It would be very easy to assume she was married. And in that culture, set aside the fact that she was a Samaritan, it was never quite seemly for a man to be speaking to a woman in a public place who was not his wife. There could be something of an explanation offered here in that Jesus was at the well first and she came to the well. People might understand that. Set aside the fact she was a Samaritan woman. No Jew would understand that. But set that aside for a moment. Set it aside for a moment and just see. Here he was. He was already at the well. She's coming to the well. There she is. People might understand that. But to have an extended conversation beyond what has just happened would be a way bit too much. Just didn't look right. So what Jesus calls on her to do is, is not really all that unexpected. 
go call your husband and you want this living water, go call your husband and bring him back and let's talk about that. You want me to prove I have it? Go get your husband and you come back and I'll prove it. So the question isn't immediately surprising, but it is for her very painful. And she tells the truth. She has no husband. But she doesn't tell all the truth, does she? No, she doesn't. And Jesus knows it. She doesn't know that Jesus knows it. But Jesus goes on for her in her place to speak the truth she hasn't spoken. And he tells her, look at verses 17 and 18. You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five. Five husbands. You've had five. Five failed relationships. Five men in your life. They've come and they've gone. 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 Five. And the one you have now is not your husband. Now this revelation hurts. But she's about to discover a truth that uh, Many, many years later, I think C.S. Lewis captured so very well in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. He, he comments in one place that the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. You see, polite people are soft on sin. They don't ever mention it. Polite religious people are soft on sin. They don't ever mention it. Mean religious people are hard on sinners because of their sin. And I want you to see with me, Jesus is neither soft on sin nor is he hard on the sinner. Can you see that? What is he doing here? He's hurting her. He's hurting her. He's hurting her, but he's hurting her because he loves her. Jesus is willing to hurt her because his love is a genuine kind of love. It hurts, but it never harms. And here we have God doing what a good God must do because he is both loving and holy. He's kind by doing what he does now. He can't help her, you see, if he can't, if she can't see that she needs his help. He can't help her if she can't see that she needs his help. Jesus is compelled then to expose her sin, which is part of the path to freeing her from it. You never get rid of sin you don't own. You cannot be free of sin you won't own. Now, we don't know all that Jesus said to her about the husband's. 
the circumstances of the five failed marriages and the live-in man she has now. John records the essence of what Jesus told her, but this and whatever else Jesus said, it did something to her. I don't know, did he mention the men's names? Did he go into detail about the, the circumstances around each failed marriage? What she did, what they did, I don't know, but something, something happened to her. What he said did something to her. Suddenly, a light has been shined on her brokenness, perhaps in a way that it has never been done before. And suddenly, there are two people the woman now sees better than she did moments before, too. First, she sees herself better, perhaps for the first time. She sees herself. She thought this was an average day. She's making her way, she's making her way like she always did to go and get water at the same well, at the same time, avoiding the same people. There she was, there she was, there she was, like she always was. And then suddenly, there is Jesus. And all Jesus does is, you notice, do you notice, he just, he just lays out the facts. There's no condemnation, there's no judgment, just facts. He doesn't soft pedal anything either. He just lays out the facts. Five husbands, five failed relationships, five failed marriages, and you're living with a man now that's not your husband. And she sees This is not the life she thought she would live. This is not what she expected when she was a young woman. Nobody grows up thinking, I want to marry five men and then spend the next chapter of my life living with a man who won't commit himself to me. Nobody does that. I, I, nobody grows up saying, I want to be an outcast. I want people to reject me. Nobody grows up saying, I want to be addicted to opioids. Nobody grows up saying, I want to be addicted to gambling. Nobody grows up saying, I want to be addicted to work. Nobody wants to grow up saying, I want to be addicted to money. Nobody grows up saying any of that stuff. Nobody grows up saying, I want to hurt the people who love me most. Nobody grows up saying that. She never grew up saying Saying that, but suddenly, all of a sudden, she meets Jesus, and there is her life in a, in, in, in a nutshell, if you will, and it is not pretty. It's enough to take your breath away. You ever woken up in the middle of the night and said, I didn't think I'd lined up here? Second, she not only sees herself clearly, but now she also sees Jesus better. You'll notice in verse 19, she calls him a prophet rather than a wonder worker without a well. I mean, he's gone up. He's gone up. He's gone up. 
He's, 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 not, he's, not, he's not that, that salesperson who comes to your door offering you something that cleans carpets. Had three little kids come to my door this past week. One little girl, blonde hair, cute as she could be, great big sign, lemonade, one dollar. She came right up to my door. We got those long windows on either side of the door. She's standing right in front of those, one of those long windows. Little cute girl, blonde hair, sweet as she could be, lemonade, one dollar. What was I going to do? I opened the door. I said, just one minute. I go upstairs. I get two bucks. I said, let me have two lemonades. The little boy down at the bottom of the stairs looks up at me and says, nope, you can't have it. <laughs> Something's wrong with your business plan there, buddy. <laughs> That's not how business works. <laughs> That's not how business works. <laughs> I said, why? <laughs> he said, because we only got one cup left. <laughs> I said, okay, give me my dollar back. <laughs> so she trots down, she follows the little boy. There's a little girl in a wagon at the end of my driveway. The little boy and the little girl go, with, go all over to the little girl with the wagon and they stand there and they go into a big discussion. Well, I'm working on something in the kitchen and so I go back to the kitchen and, I, and I, my dog was there and he barks and everybody comes to the door. So I said, if any more lemonade deliveries come, he'll bark, I'll know it. Well, I'm back, here, back there in the kitchen and he doesn't bark, 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 he doesn't bark. I go back to the door to see what's going on with my lemonade and they are gone. <laughs> That cute little blonde girl with a sign <laughs> took my dollar. <laughs> I thought for sure they would come back later and say, sir, I'm sorry. We didn't even have one cup, but we went home and made some more. No. So I'm just telling you, if you live in Waterford, watch out. There's a scam going on in our neighborhood. They're cute, they're about this tall, they got a great big sign, but they do not deliver on their promises. <laughs> Somebody call the Better Business Bureau. <laughs> what is this world coming to? So Jesus has been elevated. <laughs> He's now something more than a wonder worker without a well. He's a prophet. But you see, she suddenly realizes that she's in the presence of someone who knows things, of someone who sees things, of someone who sees people as they really are. And she decides that she's in the presence of a prophet doing what prophets have always done. Namely, prophets have always exposed sin because sin always tries to hide, especially from those who have it. 
If you've got it, it will try to hide from you. But notice that what comes next reveals something really has shifted inside of her. Now I want you to notice something. She doesn't try to defend herself when Jesus lays out the facts. She doesn't run from this prophet, does she? She actually leans in. She actually presses forward with him. She's not mocking him anymore. She's not resisting him anymore. While she's not right about who Jesus is, what she does next shows her doing what she can do and what she must do. She's owning her need for God. Her sin has been exposed. She needs what only God can give, atonement and forgiveness. She, 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 a prophet can help her see her sin, but what she needs is a way to God. What she needs is a way to deal with her sin. She needs God's mercy. She knows God is a judge who will sit one day in judgment on sinners, but she needs to find God. She needs to find his mercy before that day comes. She needs to find him seated, not on a, on a throne of judgment, but seated on a what? A mercy seat. And so she seems to be wondering just where it is that sacrifices can be made and accepted so her sin can be put away. And what she does next in verse 20 is to ask this prophet where this mercy seat of God can be found, where the true temple of the living God is, where true worship can be done, where forgiveness can be asked for, sought, and received. When she says in verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship, she isn't attempting to divert attention from her sin. She's asking how it might be finally dealt with. Where can I go to get fixed Jesus responds well after engaging and exposing this woman in her sin he does again what she doesn't expect he embraces her notice how look at the woman embraced in verses 21 to 26 now, as she says in verse 20, the Samaritan woman's forebears worshipped on Mount Gerizim, but they worshipped a God they had cobbled together using some Judaism here and some pagan religion there and mixed him together and came up with a God that wasn't God. It's exactly what we do in America. We take a little bit of Christian truth, a little bit of Hindu truth, a little bit of this truth or that truth, add in some political ideology and we mix it all up and voila, we get a God that doesn't exist. America is full of Samaritans. The result is that they had a God they, they can't really know with any certainty. He's a God who raises more questions than he answers. Faith in this God doesn't help with life. It doesn't help with sin. He doesn't satisfy. And as we've already said, the problem for this woman is that her religious faith is a faith that doesn't work. It doesn't help. Gives her little hope, very little comfort in the life that she has. 
And so God is for her a distant mystery, and her life is in many ways a misery. Now, the Jews, on the other hand, had a clear word from God in their scriptures. They had a temple with a mercy seat and sacrifices that could be offered for forgiveness. They had the promise of a, of a Savior, of a Messiah to come. And this reality is what Jesus confirms when he says in verse 22, do you see it there? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. God gave his message, his promise, his revelation of salvation to the Jews. It was meant to come through the Jews to the world. But here was the great problem. The Jews wouldn't let sinners like her in to the mercy seat. It's almost as if she is saying, isn't this hopeless, really? Aren't I hopeless, really? The faith I have is like this water I collect, the faith you Jews have you say is better you say it satisfies but your God doesn't have a place for me your God doesn't have a way for me to worship your God doesn't have a way for me to make things right You won't let me in. You, you say, I've got to change before you let me in. You say that somehow I've got to change. I've got to change being a Samaritan. I've got to change my racial makeup. You say, I've got to change. That somehow I've got to be free of sin. I've got to change my past. That's why I need to get in. I, I need to get in so I can be changed, but you won't let me in. You won't let me in. You say I'm unacceptable because I'm unworthy. But how am I ever going to be acceptable or worthy if you will not let me in? let me in please let me in I can't get in I'm shut out I'm shut out And it's right here, beginning in verse 21, that Jesus reaches out and he just embraces her. And he gives her God's heart cry. And his answer to her heart cry. And Jesus says in verse 21 that a new day and a new way to God is coming and is already here. This new day is here, but isn't quite complete yet. Why? Because the cross and the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit that make all of this final has not come yet. 
But what she needs to know is that God is already seeking true worshipers, not a temple. God's not looking for a mountain. God's looking for worshipers. He's seeking true worshipers from all over the world, not just among a particular race or gender. And God will be calling all the world back to himself to find him, find his forgiveness, and find life with him. Those whom he looks for are those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, not those who will go to the right spot, not those who will go to the right temple, not those who will come being made of the right race or the right heritage or the right ancestry. Not a one of us has the right ancestry. We've all got the wrong ancestry. Every single one of us belongs to Adam and Eve. God's looking for those who will honor and seek him with their hearts and with their hearts open and their, and their minds fixed on his truth made known by his spirit. God never asks us to open up our minds. It always bothers me when I see a church I go by and it says open, open, open minds and open hearts. He doesn't want you to open up your mind. He wants you to focus your mind on his truth as found in his word and made clear by his son, Jesus. He does want you to open up his heart, open up your heart. God's looking for people who will worship him by this spirit, the one who points to the one who is the truth, Jesus. Now, she can't understand all of this yet, and the disciples don't understand all of this yet. This new day and this new way are coming to fullness later, but because Jesus is here, Jesus' point is it has already begun. What she can understand is that the changes come. Finding God, knowing him, receiving his forgiveness and his fellowship are no longer a matter of where you are. They're no longer a matter of who you are. They are a matter of owning sin and receiving what God offers the gift of life that he gives, the water that Jesus has. Truth and life, forgiveness and restoration aren't up to us to get for ourselves. They are up to him to give. And he has come to do just that. And wherever your heart is breaking over your sin and wherever you would cry out to him, wherever you are, whoever you are, he will meet you there in his son. He will forgive you of your sin, give you a brand new life, set you on a brand new path. That is his promise. God has come to do just that, and the one who now speaks to this woman of water that lives, lasts, and never leaks, he is the water from above that satisfies below. Now, the Samaritans got many, many revealed truths wrong, but they got this much right that God had promised a Messiah to come 
one that they called the Taleb or the great teacher. And of all the spiritual things she didn't know and she didn't understand the truth, she at least does know is what she reports here where she says, I know that Messiah is coming. Talib, the teacher, is coming. He who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And here Jesus' embrace is absolutely complete. To her confession, he adds his own confession. And he does for her this uneducated, no influence, despised moral outcast, this woman with a questionable, unfaithful religion. He does for her something he did not and could not do for Nicodemus, the learned, influential, respected, orthodox, theologically trained Jew among Jews, leader of leaders. He does for her what he has done for no one else publicly yet. He says to her, look at verse 26, I who speak to you am he. And so in Jesus, we see God run toward this broken woman with open arms like a father might do with a prodigal who has finally woken up, seen the mess they've made, stopped blaming and avoiding, and just come home. Already the Holy Spirit is bringing the truth to her heart and mind about Jesus. Jesus is becoming known to her as he really is. And by him, God is being revealed, especially his great heart is being shown. True worship, real forgiveness, genuine fellowship with God are about to begin. And I want you to see with me in this one verse, she takes her first drink of living water. And she is never going to be the same again. And see with me the results in verses 27 to 29, how she is emancipated and elevated. In verses 28 to 29, John reports that the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did and still embraced me. Can this be the Christ? Surely this is the Christ. This must be the Christ. The woman's empty pot stays empty and behind as this woman goes to the people who hate her, changed. She goes to tell them the good news that she is found by a well that cannot satisfy. Her pot left behind stands as a silent witness to a life set free. <laughs> Don't have to carry that pot anymore. Doesn't have to go to that well anymore. 
doesn't have to drink from the water of relationships that break and fail anymore. Everything was changing for this woman. Her life is a life set free. Suddenly she's elevated to new worth and value and purpose, regardless of what people say. Everything was changing for her. Everything had changed in the world. And she knows that everything could change for others. And so she does what all true believers are compelled to do. She goes and she tells about the Jesus and the water she has found. Now, there's more to this story, and John shows us from verses 30 on. The disciples' discovery here of Jesus talking to a woman who suddenly leaves is much more significant than they know. For Jesus has not only a plan and a purpose for this woman, but it becomes clear that he has a plan and a purpose for them. She needed to see and know God's heart, so do they. They needed to see that God's heart is for her and has to be if she's going to have any hope, but they also needed to see that God's heart was for them and they had to know him if they were going to have any hope. When they saw her, they thought they saw someone so very different. Someone to be despised, someone to be looked down on when they saw her. But what they discovered in truth was what they saw in her was actually the same reality they could see in themselves. Men with choices, poor choices they'd made, bad attitudes they'd had, wrong directions they'd taken over and over and over again. They thought there was a world of difference between them and the Samaritan woman. There wasn't much at all. God could have called them losers and lost causes. But here's the reality. Jesus sees them as he sees her, lost and in need of being found. Loved ones, this woman's story at the beginning is your story and mine. Her story told at the end of this is the story of every true believer. With her, if we're believers, true believers, we can and we must say, he found me. Here's my story. He found me. <laughs> when I wasn't worth finding, 
He engaged me when I wasn't worth engaging. He exposed me for what I was, and yet he loved me. He embraced me when no one else really would, and he emancipated and he elevated me. He set me free from the sin that harmed and haunted me, and he gave me a new life and a new status and a, and a new purpose. This is my story. And the reason why this story is such a powerful story is because this is the story of every single man and woman who has ever lived and found that Jesus has found them. This is my story. This is your story. And when this is genuinely your story, you really begin to find it hard not to leave the old wells behind that you thought could satisfy in the old buckets. You find it hard not to go to the people who hate you And say to them, come see a man. Who told me everything I ever did. And still. loves me. This is my story. This can be your story, too. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you've done. There are no... There are no hopeless causes. There are no hopeless cases.
just broken people for whom Christ died. Are you one of those broken people? Are you standing at a well that you keep coming back to that doesn't satisfy? tired carrying that bucket around don't go looking for Jesus don't go looking for Jesus he's already here you don't have to worry about finding him he's already found you here now don't go looking for him come to him come to him hey believer get away from that silly cistern you've been drinking out of you dug it You've exchanged it for the fountain of living water. What are you doing? What are you doing? Stop digging. There's no substitute for the Christ. How long will you keep going back? to that leaky old stagnant cistern. Today's a day to be done with that. Come back. Come back to the living water. Come back to the risen Christ. Nothing's going to satisfy you. Nothing can satisfy you. You were made for God. You were not made for anything else but fellowship with Him. He's come to you in Christ. Why have you left Him? Come back. 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 Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.